Uh, we, we we're challenged by that, Lord. We, we we pray that worship would come from our hearts with such with such passion and such joy. And Lord, it is our great privilege and our great honor to come before you today and to open your Word and to study. We recognize, Lord, this morning that there are faithful believers all around the world who have not such a privilege today, either because they, they can't gather in public because of fear, of persecution, or perhaps even because of they live in such a place where, where they have no access to your word. And yet in such places, Lord, this morning you have placed men and women, missionaries who have given up their their homes, their homeland, their material goods to, to go and to follow the Great Commission and to be in such a place, to be a light in the midst of darkness. And we pray for them this morning, our brothers, our sisters around the world who, who are laboring for you in difficult places. We pray that you would encourage them this morning. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who live in such places, who gather in small gatherings, perhaps in secret perhaps in places where they don't have access to your word, that you would, Lord, empower their worship this morning, that you would encourage them, that you would fill them with your joy, that you would fill them with everything they need to to live for you in the place where you have them. And yet we give thanks this morning that we find ourselves in such a place where we have freedom, where we have great access to your word, and yet we are often so neglectful of it. We pray that you would forgive us for such things, Lord. And as we bow before you this morning, we pray in these quiet moments that you would cleanse us of our sin, that you would, that you would search our hearts and our, our minds, that you would open our eyes to any areas of our life that are being lived in ways that are not pleasing to you. You would draw us to yourself in repentance this morning. And in seeking your forgiveness, we would find it full and free. We pray, O oh Lord, for our preacher this morning who comes to open your word and teach us. Pray that you would fill him with your spirit this morning, that he might preach your word. And that we might hear it, Lord, soften our hearts, season our hearts in such a way that we would be receptive to what you would have to say to us. Those areas of our life that need challenge, Lord, we pray that we would hear it and receive it. At the end of the day, Lord, we pray that we would walk away from this this time of study and worship with hearts more devoted to you. Challenged to live for you when we leave this place. You must do this in us this morning and we pray for it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Turn your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of John. The very first chapter. Pastor Greg gave us a wonderful introduction to this book last week and So you're ready to go, I suppose. Um, Jump into the text. And it's interesting, as I was looking through it this week, that um, John doesn't really um, tell us until the end of the gospel what the purpose is. In chapter 20, verse 31, he tells us, But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why he wrote it. It's as if he he sort of guides us through the whole process, and he says at the very end, in case you hadn't figured out what this is about, here's what it's about. These things are written that you may believe. 
And that's a central point of the entire book is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by, by believing on Jesus the Christ, you may have life in his name. So that's the gospel, and that's what this gospel is about. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about the incarnation of the Son of God. It's about the one who took on a human nature and lived on earth for a small bit of time. And, and he's the one we call the God-man. That's what John is telling us here. But right here at the very beginning, there's no mention of the God-man. Um, we don't see the incarnation until verse 14 of this first chapter, and he's not named until verse 18 of this chapter, and then he's not named again until verse 29. But there's a reason for this. Pastor Greg shared that with us uh, last week in that uh, the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Luke essentially uh, begin with the the conception and the coming of the Christ child. Mark skips over those details and begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, John begins this particular gospel with a prologue. That's these first 18 verses. And that's what we're going to spend much of uh, the rest of this month, which I guess is today, um, <laughs> and, and much of December with this prologue, which is the first 18 verses. So the introduction to the entire gospel as well. Um, and the reason that he has this introduction is that he doesn't start with um, the incarnation. He doesn't start with the birth of Jesus. He doesn't start with the ministry of, of John the Baptist. Uh, John, uh, the apostle, goes all the way back to before the beginning, before time began. And we realize that it's really wrong for us to say that we couldn't really know what God is like until the Son of God came. We couldn't, it would be hard for us to know what God is like until Jesus was come in the, in the flesh and showed us by His words and by His action what God is like. And that type of thinking would mean we would just have to deny the entire Old Testament. It'd be wrong for us to suppose that Jesus came to show us the character of God that we didn't see in the Old Testament. No, we see God's character over and over and over again. It would be wrong to suggest that Christ shows us the way of salvation because we see the gospel from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ came to fulfill all that we see in the Old Testament. He came to fulfill the teachings that we have been reading, that we've been studying in the Old Testament for years and years and years. So, in John's mind, he has to start at the beginning, which is eternity, which is really not the beginning, is it? And especially in this passage that we'll look through through this Christmas season, this prologue, which really has no particular Christmas section in it, 
There are no Christmas elements in this, so to speak. But it's still important and vital for us and so vital to the church. J.I. Packer says this, the Church of England reads this prologue, these 18 verses, annually as the gospel for Christmas Day, and rightly so. Nowhere in the New Testament is the nature and meaning of Jesus' divine sonship so clearly explained as here. And so in this prologue, in these 18 verses, we really see another summary, a summation of the entire book. We see the identity of the Word. We see life. We see light. We see regeneration. We see grace. We see truth. We see the revelation of God the Father in the Son, Jesus Christ. Let me read for you the first five verses. The first verse is really all we'll look at today. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we'll take just a few of your words and add a lot of my feeble words to it. And we pray that you might open our hearts to the truths of your words this day. That we would see Jesus and him only. In his name we pray. Amen. Have you heard the name Arius? Sort of sounds like a Disney character name, uh, but it's not. Arius was born in 250, just a couple of hundred years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Arius was the center of one of the early great controversies in the church. And that controversy is based on this first verse. In the Gospel of John, Arius was a presbyter, maybe we could relate it more like a deacon in God's work in the church in Alexandria in Egypt back in um, the early fourth century. Uh, he had a superior whose name was Alexander. Uh, and they were engaged in this controversy related to the eternality of Jesus Christ. And that controversy came to be called Arianism. Now, Arius really didn't have a whole lot to do with it. He, had The controversy already existed even when he was born. Um, he sort of ramped it up himself. And wasn't greatly uh, involved over a long period of time. But another name you might recall is Eusebius, who took on this controversy and, and spread it and made it uh, even worse. And the whole teaching was that Jesus Christ is not eternal. 
eternity was not one of Christ's qualities. The Son of God actually had a beginning. He was the greatest creatures. He was involved in creation itself. He was involved in the creation of other creatures. But he himself had a beginning. So he denied the eternity of the Son. And he had lots of followers. uh, And this thing grew so much so that it was a conflict that the church had to deal with. Therefore, in 325, there was the first Council of Nicaea. And the Arian doctrine was, was, was denounced in this council uh, by, the, by the church. Um, and yet, even though it was denounced by the first Nicene council, um, uh, it continued to flourish. The controversy, the heresy continued uh, to grow. And actually, Arian Christology uh, became prominent in the church. For many, many years, there's another man who was born 40 years later. Athanasius was 40 years younger than Arius. And eventually he becomes, in 328, he becomes the bishop of Alexandria, Egypt. And he became the bishop at the age of 30. The people of Egypt always saw him as their bishop. He ran in, uh, in trouble with the Roman authorities, he, um, and yet he continued to be viewed as their bishop. Seventeen of the 45 years that Athanasius was the bishop of Alexandria, uh, 17 of those 45 years, he was in exile. He'd been cast out, and not all at one time, on five different occasions. It totaled up to be 17 years. And yet, to his people, this godly man was always seen as their bishop, whether he was there or whether he was in exile. Athanasius is one of the great heroes of the Christian church. You need to study him, read about him. He's one of the great heroes of the Christian church because he saw that if the Arian controversy, that Christ was not eternal, if he saw that that prevailed, then we would not have the church as we know it today. In fact, he saw that if that doctrine prevailed, that doctrine related to the eternality of the Son of God, if it prevailed, we would not even be here today. You'd be sleeping. Or that this Christian religion would become just a sect, a heretical sect. And we would not be here today worshiping the triune God. Christianity would be false. And Athanasius, he lives until he was 75. He spent his entire life defending the Trinity. Long story short, it's already been long, aren't you thinking that? 
years after that Council of Nicaea, which had little effect on the prominence of the controversy, there was another council, the Council of Constantinople. And they took the doctrine of Nicaea and they affirmed it and they strengthened it. And they strengthened it because they had people like Athanasius and others who defended the doctrine of the Trinity. And now you might think, you might be thinking, now why is he giving us a history? Okay, we know Pastor Frank like, likes history and all that stuff, but why is he giving us this history lesson today? How, how could this be interesting to Christians at Grace on the Ashley Church in 2013? This doesn't have much to say to me. Well, yes, it does. There are Arian-like Christologies around us every day. Jehovah's Witnesses denies the eternality of the Son of God. They deny the Trinity, and you meet them every day. They deny the deity of the Son of God. In fact, they translate this first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, this is how they translate it, and the Word was a God. Was a God. And that makes Jehovah's Witnesses polytheistic. All of a sudden, by that one little article, they're not a monotheistic religion anymore. It's a pagan religion. Mormons deny the deity of the Son of God. Now, they speak, they use the term Son of God, Mormons do, but they deny His eternity. They deny uh, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. One of their leaders, I meant to put this quote up, but one of their leaders, the early presidents of the Mormon church, said, "...as man is, God once was." As God is, man may become polytheism. And so all of us in their doctrine, God included, were once men and on our way to becoming gods. Now, I know some of you already think you are, but on our way to becoming gods and we will eventually become gods. Which leads us to this verse. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in this verse, we see the eternity of the Word, we see the personality of the Word, and we see the deity of the Word. First, the eternity of the Word, the preexistence of the Word, in the beginning of the Word. Now, that, that's a statement about the eternity of the Son of God. Anybody who read the Bible at that time or read John's letter and even us today as we read it, we're going to recognize that that's an allusion to the very first uh, verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In fact, the Greek Translation of the Hebrew Old Testament uses the exact same phrase in the beginning. 
was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. We can't say that too much. So the same expression is used. And so Jews, others who would, would read John's letter, are going to recognize that is related to this first verse in the Old Testament. That God created the heavens and the earth. And it wasn't so much that the Word came into existence at that time. It's not like in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning the Word began. No, that's not what he's saying here. That's not what he's talking about. In the beginning, that's when God created the heavens and the earth. And when God created the heavens and the earth, the Word already was. He doesn't say in the, in the beginning the Word became. He doesn't say in the beginning the Word came into existence. In the beginning the Word came to be. In fact, he uses the verb to be later in several places in this same chapter so that we can understand it's not being used here, but it is being used in other places, in, in, um, in verse 3, he says, All things came to be through him. Verse 6, There came a man sent from God. He uses that, in, in, in that verb in, in, in these two verses, but not in verse 1. So we will understand that the Word did not come to be at the beginning. The Word already was when the beginning came. In the beginning, the Word was in existence. And so, John takes us actually on this quick flight past creation. Back into the ages past, back into eternity, the Word was in existence then. So in the beginning was the Word. He doesn't mention the name Jesus. He doesn't say that Jesus was in the beginning. Now, that wouldn't be right because Jesus was the name given to the God-man born of a virgin Mary. It's his human nature that was given this name, Jesus. So we could, he could have said, or we could say, but it would be rather awkward to say, in the beginning was the second person of the Godhead. Because he always existed with God, and as God, the second person of the Godhead did come and take on human flesh at some point in time, but not at this point that John is talking about. So when we talk about the Lord's pre-existence, we are speaking of him as the second person of the Godhead, not as Jesus. The word existed from all eternity. In the beginning, and we see in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. He reiterates it. Uh, William Hendrickson says, this is just another way of saying that he existed from all eternity. He was not what certain heretics claimed him to be, a created being. 
So the divine word had no beginning. The divine word existed from eternity past. And his eternal existence is vitally important to our understanding of the Trinity. He reaffirms in John 8:58, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Paul tells us in Colossians 1, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 13a, Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. The, one, the minor prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And in the Revelation 1, verse 8, I'm the Alpha and Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Over and over and over we see the eternity of the Word. And that's a strange name, the Word. John calls him this peculiar name, Word. He, it's used in other places. John calls him the word of life in 1 John. In the Revelation, the word of God. And we see that the word is synonymous with the, with, with the second person of the Trinity. He was the word of God. It's the logos. It's the same, it's the same word that we get our word, word from. You got that? It's the same word that we get our word, word from. Logos. A word is an audible expression. The, the word, word is an audible thought. Thoughts, you can't communicate thoughts unless you have some gift I'm not aware of. You can't communicate them until they're put into the words. When Jesus was here among us, he expressed to us what was going on in the mind of God. He's the Word. He told us the thoughts of God. He was God's utterance here on earth. He unveiled to us what Paul tells the Corinthians, the secret and hidden wisdom of God. And so Matthew Henry says the plainest reason Why the Son of God is called the Word seems to be that our words explain our minds to others, so the Son of God sent in order to reveal His Father's mind to the world. Charles Simeon says this name, as applicable to the Messiah, was not altogether unknown to the Jews, and it seems peculiarly proper to the Son, because it is by the Son of God It has in all ages revealed his mind to man. So Logos reveals that he is the full and final revelation of God to man. 
as words reveal the mind, as words reveal the will of the one who is speaking Christ in this case, the divine word fully reveals to us mankind, the will, the mind, the purposes, and even the presence of God. Hendrickson, talk, William Hendrickson talking about this, a word serves two distinct purposes. It gives expression to the inner thought, the soul of, man, of the man, doing this even though no one else is present to hear what is said or to read what is thought. And it reveals this thought, hence the soul of the speaker, to others. He goes on to say, Christ is the word of God in both respects. He expresses or reflects the mind of God. Also, he reveals God to man. That's useful in our understanding of the word. It's probably not all that John had in mind here. Because in the, in the Hebrew sense of the word as well, when we go back to the Old Testament, we read that there are certain things related to the word. First of all, we see God's creative power in the word. Where would we see God's creative power in his word? And God said... Let there be light. God's creative power in the word. We see in the Psalms God's redemptive power. He sent his word and healed them. He sends his word which acts redemptively in the lives of people. And then we see his guiding purpose In his word as well, think about those prophets we've been preaching through, the minor prophets. And God says to Hosea, go tell these people. It's words. God's guiding word in the lives of people. In the beginning was the word. God's creative power in action. God's redemptive power in action. God's guiding purpose in all the work of history. All That is personalized in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So in the beginning, the word existed. The eternity of the Son. And so John is telling Jews and Greeks who read this, for centuries you've been talking, thinking, writing about the word, the logos. Now I'm going to tell you who he is. The Word already was. The Word predates creation. The Word never came into existence. The Word never had a beginning. The Word's eternal. And that's why the Word can reveal to you and to me with so much clarity... Who God is. That's the eternity of the word. Secondly, we see the personality or the distinctiveness of the word. The word was with God. 
Now, this, na- this answers a question that you might naturally have at a time with this. In the beginning was the Word. Well, where was the Word? The Word was with God. The Word enjoyed eternal fellowship with the Father. Uh, Hendrickson again says, Christ experienced the closest possible fellowship with the Father. He took supreme delight in this communion. uh, You can literally translate this. He was face to face with God. Face to face with God when? Forever. And then verse 2 just emphasizes that more. He was in the beginning with God. John says even more about this in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it, testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Christ had perfect Fellowship with the Father, with God the Father throughout all eternity. And Jesus even emphasizes this in that wonderful prayer in John chapter 17, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So the Father and the Son throughout all eternity have shared the brightness of his glory. The word was in eternity past in an intimate companionship with God Himself. We see uh, some of that in the last verse of this prologue, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And the Word was with God at the Father's side. He exists at the Father's side. It's the constant experience of the Word of God. John tells us in 1 John 2, 1, we have an advocate with the Father. That that, that, that with means something different from when I'm, let's say, I'm in my office and I've got all those books in there. I could say those books are with me. That's not what John means with, with here. What he means here is that the with of the W-I-T-H of fellowship. It's that with that John says we have an advocate with the Father serving together. Acting together, thinking together, 
where he is in his deity, his divine personality. They're making plans for me and for you. And their plans have been settled for us in ages past, before the beginning. And then we have that reminder of Him being with the Father, the distinctiveness of the Son. We also have the reminder in Genesis 1 of the plurality of the Godhead. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is the fellowship of the one person of the triune God with another person of the triune God. So the communion that exists between the Father and the Son is expressed in this one phrase, and the Word was with God. And then lastly, we see His deity, and the Word was God. The deity of the Word. You know, he talks about the past. It's all in past tense here. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. God was, is, and will be the same. And the divine nature of the Word remained the same after the Incarnation. But John's talking about when that was. If the Word was God, then He is God. The same is said of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Was God, He is God. The context that John is talking about today is in the past tense. His gospel eventually gets us to the incarnation. God with us refers to the Word apart from the Incarnation here, that we might have an understanding of where He was and the process that God went through for this to happen, this Incarnation to take place. The Word was fully divine. The Word was God. Christ has always been and Christ always will be divine. Fully divine at His birth. Fully divine at His death and resurrection. He didn't cease being the Son of God when He died. The Word was God. And that's stated emphatically in other places. Philippians 2.6 Who? Though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Two places in Colossians. Colossians 1.15 is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. Chapter 2, verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Or we see he's Emmanuel. In Matthew 1, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.16, He was manifested in the flesh. 
And that word was God. There's really no doubt here. It's why it's always troubling that those religions I mentioned earlier deny this great truth that Jesus is God. There's no other translation. There's no other translation of this statement that you could make that would not violate the laws of Greek grammar to change it from anything that we have it as. If we say, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, that Jesus was a God, then we're introducing polytheism. But if there's only one God, and Jesus was a God, then Jesus is the God. That's what John affirms here. That he's possessed of deity. So in this first clause, we have the eternity of the Son. In the second clause, we have the communion or distinctiveness with the Father. And in this third clause, His deity. Now, the whole purpose of John declaring these things comes to light as we go through the book. It continues to unfold as John explains who he is and he shows up the life and the actions of Jesus Christ. Then you finally look back here in verse 1. Yeah, that's what he means. That's why he said that. He wants us to come to some conviction of this before he even begins his gospel. That there is in heaven a Father... And there is in heaven a spirit, and there is the Word, the second person of the Trinity, who is God. And He is worthy of all the worship we would give the Father and we would give the Spirit. In fact, at the very end of this Gospel, you know, you have Doubting Thomas there. And what happens when Doubting Thomas's eyes are open? He says, my Lord and my what? God. What, that, 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 that's what John wants us to finally come to when we get to the end. He wants us to fall down on our knees like Thomas did and worship my Lord and my God. He sets the stage here in this first verse. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. In other words, he said, I'm going to tell you about, I'm going to give you an account of the deeds and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand them as the deeds and the words of God Himself. If this is not true, then this is just a blasphemous book. And the false teachers are correct. And Christianity ought to be nothing more than what the, the ancient historians can study. But it's not that, John says. John says, 
He is God. And we do not give Jesus Christ true worship until we recognize Him as God. So that's, we see John's logic here. There is a person known as the Word. This person is God because He's eternal. This person is God because He is plainly called God. At the same time, this person does not encompass all that God is. God the Father is a distinct person from the Word. So, the Father and the Son are equally God, yet they're distinct in their persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. Yet they are equally God. With God, the Holy Spirit, making one God, three persons. That's the mystery. of I know you're trying to wrap your head around it all. That's the mystery of the Trinity. There is but one God, yet when, within this oneness of God's being, there are three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And these three are one, same in substance, same in power, same in glory. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is really the essence of the doctrine of the Trinity. And we cannot worship Him, as I said, until we recognize Him as God. And that's why He was able to reveal God as no other. Let's go back to that controversy. It's a couple hundred years after the resurrection of Jesus. In one little phrase, this is Arius' heretical doctrine. There was a time when he was not. That's what he taught. That there was a time when he was not. And that was refuted. The Christian church came to stand behind the, the fact that there was not a time when he did not exist. And oh, this controversy, even after the Nicene Creed was, was, was affirmed in that Council of Constantinople, there, there were still great regions of Christianity that bought into this Arianism. But Athanasius is best known for his single-minded love for Jesus Christ. And it's expressed in that lifelong battle to explain and defend Christ's eternality and defend Christ's deity and to worship Christ as Lord and as God. That's why we have a phrase, Athanasius Contramundum, which means Athanasius against the world. He stood against overwhelming odds to defend orthodoxy. 
I don't even know if that was the beginning of orthodoxy, but many people will call Athanasius the father of orthodoxy. And only at the end of his life was he able to see victory. There were 60 years between that first Council of Nicaea, 325, and the Council of Constantinople in 381. And in those 60 years, that's when that battle was fought. The Council of Nicaea established the battle lines and staked out the deity of Jesus Christ. And the Council of Constantinople confirmed and refined the Nicene Creed. Now, we're not creed with us Baptists, and so we don't read these things a whole lot. But this is what the Nicene Creed says about Jesus Christ. And friends, this is the gospel. And if you're here today and Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, here's the gospel. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day He rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and His kingdom will have no end. That's the good news. And so what John is telling us in the first two verses of this chapter is mind-boggling to those who at least are reading it for the very first time, and that is Jesus is God. Before He took on human flesh, the Word, the Word, capital W, existed eternally as God and, and is in fellowship with God the Father. It's important. It's a, it's, we must grasp this. John's words cannot be reduced to mean anything else or anything less. Our Lord is God. He's eternal. He existed from the very beginning and He has forever existed with the Father. And John will take the rest of the book to convince us that that's true. The most obvious connection that John makes is that the God who created the universe is the God who is found lying in a manger in Bethlehem. He didn't even have his origins in Genesis 1 and 2 when God created the world. He was there. He was already there with God, there as God. Now, are we reading something into the Bible that's not there? Are we just making this up? Are we reading too much into it? No. This affirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ is constantly made throughout this gospel. 
And you'll hear Jesus say it over and over again. He claims not only to be God, but to have come down from the Father in heaven. And this is what those who have trusted Him have come to believe. You know, if anybody had the opportunity to look at the failures and the faults, to really try to pick the faults and the failures of Jesus Christ, it was John. Yet we have this amazing conclusion after observing his life and hearing his teaching, what he did and what he said. After doing all of that, John can declare Jesus is God. And he says in verse 34, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. You must believe it. Let's pray. In a moment, we're going to sing a song. You have questions about all of this? All this talk about Jesus is just strange to you. Pastor Greg and others will be at the back as we sing this song. You make your way back there. need somebody to pray with you. There will be others in the back who will pray with you during this time. We pray, too, that if you're here and you have not a faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that you might turn from your sin today. And believe the truth of that gospel that I read to you just a few minutes ago. Turn from you being your own God to the one true and living God. Father, we pray that you might open our hearts to your truths. That you might use us as your people to declare these truths. Especially this time of year when people are even expecting us more to declare the great and precious promises of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Empower your church to do that. For your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pray. Amen. Pray. Amen. Pray. Amen. Pray.